You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to follow as I read from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, beginning to read at the 13th verse and reading through to verse 20. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter— And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. Father, guard and guide my words, our thoughts, as we look to the Bible and as we prepare to gather around the table that you have spread for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to make uh, three points this evening, and the third one that I will make concerns uh, the security of the church of Jesus Christ that is found in Christ's victory. Uh, There is, at least in my own mind, some kind of logical progression from our study this morning to at least my third point for this evening, Uh, because I want just to think with you for a moment or two about the nature of the church and particularly about the promise of Jesus concerning the church. Uh, Those of us who have been around church life for a long time uh, will have seen times of encouragement, times of difficulty. We will have been members of congregations that seem to dwindle, Perhaps we've been part of a congregation that has known amazing and encouraging times. And when we're in the former state, we're perhaps tempted to believe that somehow or another the whole affair is going to come to a crashing halt. And it is on account of God's purpose and on account of His plan and account of His security— that we can have confidence concerning the future of the church. There's a tremendous amount of discussion just now uh, amongst millennials about whether the church really has any place at all. After all, if you have a cell phone, why would you need a church? If you have an iPad, uh, you can deal with all these things without having to get involved with old people and other people and people you don't like and be involved uh, with all kinds of things. And one of the challenges uh, for that generation is in recognizing what the Bible actually has to say about the nature of the church and why it is so amazingly important. But 
Uh, this is a vast subject, and I only, as I say, want to make these three observations. And, and the first is this, that when we come, and I only want to deal with this phrase of Jesus, I will build my church, that when we come to this phrase, it is important for us to view it in light of eternity, to view it in light of eternity, or if you like, to view it in light of God's eternal purpose. And what is God's eternal purpose? Well, his eternal purpose is that he would gather a people that are his very own, and that the promise that he made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed is the unfolding story as we read through the Bible. And indeed, when you come to this word church here, which means a congregation or a a gathering of people or an assembly of people, the word that is used is actually the usual Greek word to translate the Hebrew word which you find in the Old Testament for the gathering of the people of God. One of the phrases that you find as you read the Old Testament is the assembly of Israel. And it speaks routinely about the day of assembly and the gathering and the assembling of the people of God. Uh, So from Mount Sinai onwards— Uh, we read this again and again. And so what you actually have in the assembly of Israel is a kind of prototype of the church itself. It is, if you like, the unfolding of that which will come in its fullness. I mention this because I think it is possible for us, when we see the word church, to think that somehow or another this only starts in Matthew, but clearly it doesn't. And when we read this statement by Jesus— we should also have at least an echo in our minds of the promise of God to David. And the Lord declared to David that he would make him a house, and quotes, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. So this great prospect that would be fulfilled in the temple initially— and then will be fulfilled in the purposes of Jesus is there. So, when Jesus says, I will build my church, to make that promise is not incidental, is not tangential to his role as the Messiah, because Jesus is, as we've just been singing, the son of David. Jesus is the promised son of David, who is the son of God, who will build a house for God's name, so that the son of David would build a dwelling place, which would be the expression of the gathering of the people of God, the fulfillment of what had been represented in the Ark of the Covenant, and yet that didn't fulfill it all. And even as we saw this morning, it's continually pointing ahead. Now, the significance of this is straightforward. It's simply this, that when Jesus says, "'My church,' It doesn't imply that there was no Old Testament ecclesia, that there was no Old Testament gathering, but it actually reflects the fact that Jesus has come, if you like, to reconstitute all of the scattered people that have been there throughout time. And so the verb here to build, I will build my church, is actually a true future. And the start of what is going to happen here is grounded in the person and work of Jesus. The project, if you like, this particular aspect of the project, awaits the death and the resurrection and the the commission 
and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, as we saw this morning, and the pouring out of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Uh, We have uh, destroyed this temple, and in three days I will build it again. And they said, oh, dear, you can't do that with a temple. He wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And it took time for them to to wrestle with this and to understand it. So when you read the Old Testament, you discover that God gathers his people at Sinai. Then they go out from there, and they decide that they would like to enjoy some of the things that other people enjoy. And they begin to worship false gods, and they begin to go down false avenues. And so God sends his prophets to them in order that the prophets might reaffirm the promise of God through Abraham that there is going to be a great gathering of the people of God— and these, sub, these uh, 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 prior gatherings are like scale models of the real thing, so that the church that Jesus is building uh, corresponds to the Old Testament temple as an antitype to a type or as substance to the shadow. That was the shadow. Here is the substance. That was a type. Here is the antitype. Now, what this actually means is that God is continuing to do what he has promised to do in the person and work of his Son. So that even as, for example, tonight, uh, we have the privilege of welcoming a, a couple who represent, um, as a nation, uh, South Korea. And then we realize the vast significance of the building of the church in South Korea— as we think about the nature of what is happening in sub-Saharan Africa, as we think about what is happening through the translation of the Bible in in South America, as we think about what is happening in Eastern Europe and way and beyond us, what is actually happening? Well, God is doing what he's promised to do from all of eternity, to put together a people that are his very own. And now Jesus stands forward, and he says, and this is what will happen. Fanny Crosby, who isn't much sung anymore, I don't think. At least we don't sing many of her hymns, although we can resurrect them if we choose. But she has a number of hymns that just focus on this very theme, on that bright and glorious morning when the dead in Christ will rise and the glory of his resurrection see, and with bodies all celestial we shall meet them in the skies— what a gathering of the ransom that will be. What a gathering. What a gathering. What a gathering of the ransomed uh, in that summer land of love. What a gathering. What a gathering. What a gathering in our happy home above. You just think about this for a minute. You remember again the old song, uh, you have heard of little Moses in the bulrush. You have heard of fearless David and his sling. You have heard the story told of dreaming Joseph and of Jonah and the whale I often sing. There are many, many others in the Bible. I should like to meet them all, I do declare. And by and by the Lord will surely let me meet them at that meeting in the air, for there's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. And I'm going to meet you, meet you over there in that home beyond the sky. And what singing there will be Uh, What singing we will hear, never, never heard by mortal ear, t'will be glorious, I do declare, and God's own Son will be the leading one 
at that meeting in the air, because from all of eternity he has purposed to do as he said. The second observation is this, that the way in which this is being accomplished is by means of the proclamation of the gospel— by means of the proclamation of the gospel. When Paul uh, leaves the church in Ephesus, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, he says to them, you know, I haven't hesitated to tell you anything. I have, I have laid out for you the entire uh, panorama of the gospel. I have given to you the word of grace, which is able to build you up which is able to build you up. Oikodomia, it's the same verb. Jesus says, I will build my church. How's he going to build his church? Well, he builds his church through his apostles. Doing what? Preaching the gospel. Recording for us, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, so that the Scriptures may then be our proclamation to a world that needs to know who God is and what God has done. And what a wonderful thing it is. So that by the time we are reading, for example, the letter of the Ephesians, or to the Ephesians, uh, we see that the uh, building work is apparent. He has gone there, and he has preached. And he says to them, And you have heard uh, this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You have believed it. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And consequently, remember what he says to them. He says, You are fellow citizens— once you were, uh, once you were uh, stateless, once you were friendless, once you were outsiders and you didn't belong. But that's no longer true of you. Now you have a new identity in a new community, in the church. You're not only fellow citizens, but remember in our study we said we're also family members, so that there is an intimacy, there is an honesty, there is an integrity, there's a reality about it all. And we are actually stones in the temple that God is building. So that we don't look to buildings. When we ask the question, where on earth does God live? He doesn't live in a tabernacle in the wilderness. He doesn't live in a temple in Jerusalem. But he lives in the church to which the tabernacle and the temple pointed. So when we take up the words of the psalmist in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. We're not singing about Jerusalem. We're not singing about a temple there. But rather, we're singing about a multinational temple that is made up of living stones. And those stones are put in place according to God's eternal purpose, adding to the church those who are being saved. So that the same grace that brought us into union with Christ is the ground of our communion with one another. It is his eternal purpose. It is by means of the gospel, by his Spirit, through the gospel, the Lord Jesus is building his church. And when we wrestled with this in our studies in Ephesians, uh, we tried to scramble to an understanding of the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And subsequent to that, I've thought about it some more. I wish I'd thought about it then. But as I looked to what the Reformers did with that, when the Reformers—and this is the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation, so it's good to make mention of them—but when they referred to the visible and invisible church, they were not talking about two churches. They were not talking about the idea of a real church, which is invisible, and then a visible church, which is not really the real church at all. Rather, they saw the visible and the invisible as two aspects referring to the one true church. Jim Packer helpfully says, that which it means 
to the eyes of men who see only the appearance, and that which it has to the eye of God, who looks on the heart and knows things as they are, and whose estimate of spiritual realities, unlike ours, is unending. Well, then when is our church a real church? What does it mean to be the church? Well, the 39 articles of the Church of England uh, put it succinctly like this. The visible church is a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure Word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly administered according to God's ordinance in all these things that of necessity are requisite to the same. So, in other words, not every location or gathering of people that uses the word church in their name is a church. The church of the Latter-day Saints is not the church. It can't be the church. You can't have Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, reduced to a created being and still have a church. And if you think about it in terms of unity, there is such a great longing for unity, a longing for unity without God that was expressed in the Old Testament in the construction of Babel and is represented today in all kinds of ways to try and bring people together. The attempt to have unity without the gospel at all in the face of liberal thought whereby the lowest common denominator is good enough to do. But no, the church is built by the proclamation of the gospel. And how can we be sure that this will be accomplished? That's my third and final point. The security of the church rests on the victory of Christ in the cross. The security of the church rests in the victory of Christ on the cross. The evil one who is radically opposed to Christ, as we saw this morning, is equally opposed to all who are in Christ. The history of the church is the history of warfare, actually. Again, it's not politically correct to sing hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, but there's a reason why they wrote Onward Christian Soldiers, because they were prepared to acknowledge that it is a sore battle to name the name of Christ and to walk out into a world that is opposed to him. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching us to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. No, we understand that. And the reason that uh, we read church history is in part to help us learn from those who faced the warfare and were successful. Peter and John and Polycarp and Chrysostom and Ridley and Bunyan and Luther and Calvin and Latimer and Baxter and Marie Durand and so many more. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. And Jesus affirms the fact that in the building of his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, on the one hand, is representative of the powers of evil that, if you like, dwell in that uh, context. Or, if you like, the gates of hell representative of the realm of the dead, the gates of Haiti. 
And so the world looks on and says, well, it will eventually go away. It will eventually fizzle and die. And yet here we find ourselves tonight on the east side of Cleveland. What are we all doing here? What are we doing here? Is Jesus actually building his church? Do you remember years ago when we were back, some of you, uh, the three of you who remember that song we just began with, um, when we were back on Fairmount Boulevard in one of the early, in one of the early uh, Easter services, the, we had a wonderful man with a baritone voice sing, sing that song, uh, Go Ahead, Drive the Nails in My Hands. Remember that? And they said, But I'll rise again. It was like, Ooh, but I'll rise again. There ain't no power on earth can tie me down. Why? Because he was not abandoned to Hades. God raised him up. God raised him up. And so tonight, victory is ours in Christ. And the security of that which he is engaged in to do stands in stark contrast to the rise and fall of empires throughout the world. Even in the brief lifetime which I have known, empires have come and gone in quick succession. The map that I had to uh, take a large wooden pointer and point to shows how old I am and, uh, and identify the, the, the nations that were represented in the Soviet Union. All that has changed. Assyria is gone. Babylon's gone. Persia's gone. Greece is gone. Rome is gone. Uh, the British Empire is gone, and the American Empire comes right behind it. Kings and thrones will perish. Nations rise and wane, but the church of Jesus, constant, will remain. Because Jesus, in the final day, will say to his Father, the one who said, I will build my church, will say to his Father in the last day, of those you gave me, not one of them is lost. Of those you gave me, not one of them is lost. There will be no vacant seats. There will be no passes left at will call. There will be no no-shows. Why? Because it is Christ who is building his church. What a wonder it is, and what an encouragement it is. Can I, can I just ask you, are, are, you a, are you a member of Christ's church? Have you come by grace alone, through faith alone, to Christ alone? I'm not asking you about standing up here with a sticker on. Now, this is the real question. Are you a member of the church of Jesus Christ? We sang this morning to the tune of the German national anthem, Savior, if of Zion City I through grace a member am. Well, may I ask you, are you able to change the if to the since? Savior, since I through grace a member am. Are you a member of Christ's church? And then let me invite you, if you are not, to become one, to trust in Christ. Some of you come here routinely to this communion table. I think you think this table is magic. It's partly because of your background. And you've got a notion in your mind that coming to Christ is somehow framed liturgically, 
Somehow or another, if a religious professional can dispense something to you, it may in itself be the very mechanism necessary. And it isn't, loved ones. It isn't. This is a meal that is being prepared for those who have come to trust in Christ. What are you saying? That you're too sinful? That Christ's blood didn't cover your sins? Or you don't know what to say? Say this, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that you bid me come to thee. Lord Jesus Christ, I come. The question is crucial. The invitation is sincere. And the promise is Christ's promise. I will fulfill all of these things. J.C. Ryle has a wonderfully purple passage in one of his books addressing these things. And he says to his congregation way back in the day, he says, and I know some of you are sitting out there tonight and you're saying, well, you know, what is going to happen? All the good ministers are all dying. All everybody's dying now. The church is beginning. Uh, look at what, we've, what we're left with. And he says to them, fear not for the church of Christ when ministers die and saints are taken away. Christ can ever maintain his own cause. He will raise up better servants and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thought about the future. Cease to be cast down by the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for his own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All is going on well, though our eyes may not see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Well, here we are, before the promise of Christ, grounded in eternity, furthered in gospel proclamation, and secure in the confidence that Jesus has never made a promise that he is either unable or unwilling to keep. And that same Lord Jesus is the one who bled and died for us in order that we might take these simple emblems as an indication of the wonder of his grace and take them to ourselves to the benefit of our own souls. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank you that we need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Lord, help us to look away from ourselves tonight. We bow in wonder before your redeeming love, and we come to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.